Once again, for those of you who are watching online uh, that are homesick today, my, uh, our encouragement to you all, uh, there's been a number of us who have been sick as of late. Uh, Tis the season for such things to be shared amongst people. And, um, and for those of us out of town as well, um, our encouragement for safe return. Um, meanwhile, the book of John is still here, and it's here to work on us today. And I would encourage you to turn to John chapter 12. If you see in the bulletin that we're going to be working through verses 1 through 19, fear not. While it is a long passage, it is a more topical passage we're going to take it as. And so um, that doesn't exactly uh, conflate to us being here until 2 p.m. Um, we will be here only to, to focus on these responses that we have. And it's really a unique section of the Gospel of John. And I wanted to highlight it when we got back here um, after a few weeks of taking a break for, um, for other messages um, to come back and land a little bit softly in here. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 19, includes four different responses to Jesus' ministry at this point. Here we come up to the last week. So if you're not aware, half of the Gospel of John takes place in the last week of his ministry. From, from the end of chapter 11 all the way to the end, we have uh, Jesus going through all of Passion Week uh, and <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Palm Sunday, and, um, and certain happenings on Wednesday, and then we have what is in the classic uh, uh, Christian history called Monday Thursday, uh, which, is, which is the celebration of Passover and the institution of the Lord's Supper. Then we have Good Friday, which we only named good after the fact, because during the time it was not very fun to go through, Holy Saturday, and then Easter. So those, that last week takes place in half the Gospel of John. Uh, and so you can see that John is just focusing right in and saying now that the ministry of Jesus is coming to a close, where does everyone stand? Right? Because again, we come to the Gospel of John and we realize, and I have it up there every single time we're going through John, that you may believe and live. This is, this is the understanding that as the reader of the Gospel of John, the same question goes to you. How are you responding to the message of Jesus Christ? Are you among those who believe and will live, or those who do not? And he gives us certain aspects to analyze even our own lives, comparing them to those characters that are in the story. Today, we have an individual that responds to Christ and what it looks like in her life, and an individual that does not respond to Christ and what it looks like in his life. Then we have a group of people that respond to Christ well and how it looks in their life, and a group of people that do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and how it looks in their life. This, this two-pronged approach we're going to cover today and show you how John is showing us to analyze our own life. Do we sit in those who are believing on Jesus and it is affecting our lives, or are we those who are self-deceived? And he gives us straight up. So when we come to something like this, it's one of those great times where we get to take almost a topical way to approach a passage in John because he intends for us to do so. And so we're going to do that very thing. If you're taking notes, by the way, this is a very easy sermon to take notes on because I'll just give you all the points and kickers ahead of time, okay? So before we do that, let's stand in honor of God and his word and we will read this passage which takes place and starts to take place the day before Palm Sunday. The word of the Lord. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. 
So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me with you. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because that worked so well the first time. Verse 11, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going out and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is, a, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that we are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Father, we're grateful for this passage. We're grateful for the examples worthy of emulation. We are grateful for the examples worthy of avoidance. Both are present in our lives. Both are present in your word. Both are here in this passage. And we are grateful for both, both those whose lives are a warning to us not to follow the way of death and those whose lives are examples to us to follow the way of life. We're grateful for these things, Father, both the warnings and the blessings. We pray, Father, that we may be found among those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and follow his way of life. We pray that we may honestly look at our lives today, as your word says, to see whether or not we are in the beloved. Father, may we see ourselves as you see us, as Christians, may we see ourselves in the position of Christ, loved by you, called by you, sanctified by you, with the privilege of being in your presence. Father, we seek to desire these things above all. We pray that you give us these hearts even this day in your son's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> if you do take notes, let me give them to you. Really simple. There's four responses with two outcomes. We'll discuss the way of life and the way of death both. But the four responses in order, Mary, Judas, the crowd, and the Pharisees and chief priests. Mary, Judas, the third one is the crowds, the fourth one is the Pharisees and chief priests. Mary and the crowds 
Both are following the way of life. They are put up as examples for the readers of John. Judas and the Pharisees and chief priests are put up as the negative examples following the way of death. John will give us aspects of them both, what both paths look like, both as individuals and as corporate, what it looks like. And we are meant to analyze ourselves. In fact, that's the whole point of the Gospel of John, that the reader may look upon themselves and see whether or not they believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore may have assurance of life itself. Okay, let's get into it. When we open up this passage, we find ourselves right before the day of what we call now in church history, the triumphal entry or the, um, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem uh, that happens before Easter, the week before it. Uh, we call that Palm Sunday. We call it the triumphal entry day. Uh, all manner of different ways to call it. Same thing. It, it is the day that the crowds welcome Jesus into Jerusalem. At not the behest of the Pharisees, but quite against what they had desired. Here, the day before that happened, six days before the Passover, Jesus came back to Bethany. And this is, I think, one of those great aspects of this. We know that there is this seething plot to kill Jesus. Because again, everything he is preaching is taking power away from those who do not truly believe. That happens all the time when the gospel is preached. And so what is expressed here is not that this sign that just happened in the previous chapter, the story is not necessarily continuing. Jesus has actually left Bethany, and he went back to Ephraim, and stayed there with his disciples. And this is kind of where we left him off in chapter 11. And John says, now we come all the way up to six days before the Passover, and Jesus is now coming back to Jerusalem, the place where those who are seeking to kill him are residing. In fact, we left off chapter 11, if you remember this, last verse in chapter 11, that the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, that he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Their goal was to put him to death. Obviously, that's the bad example. Not that I have to point that out. But we'll come to this here. For When we open up chapter 12, verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus came back to Bethany, the place where they absolutely would recognize where he was going, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. I find this personally quite fascinating, what it would be like. What are the conversations around that table? What would be the questions you'd be asking Lazarus? Yeah, what did you see? That almost be the first question I would ask him. What were those four days like? And is this a very depressing place to live after that experience? Because honestly, that would be my next follow-up question. Because whatever you experience being the presence of the Lord, to come back here would be a, a tall order. And he wasn't an old man by any reckoning, uh, seeing as all siblings still live together, at least culturally speaking, probably about 40 or 50 tops. And so... We're not talking about somebody who uh, will only have like another year here on the earth. We're talking about somebody who's going to come back and live out the rest of his years here. It's kind of a hard thing to wrap your head around. Uh, but we're not given those details as much as they would tickle our curiosities. What we are given is that they're all eating dinner together. Martha was serving. Lazarus was one of those reclining with Jesus at the table. And in the middle of all of that... We have our first example of response to Jesus' ministry. 
right? John is setting up this reality that, that the ministry of Jesus is coming to a close. All the signs that he was going to do have been done. All the message he was sent to deliver has been delivered. All the gospel he was sent to preach, he has done. All the miracles he was sent to do have been accomplished. Now comes his hour. And so it's a time right here at the center of John for the reader to take stock of themselves. Where do you sit with this? And that goes to Christian and unbeliever alike. It's an opportunity for all of us to sit back and say, hey, let me actually look at my life. Let me look at those things that are on, as, as the early church would express in a very Jewish manner, is this action in my life, is this part of my life on the way to life or is it on the way to death? Which way is it driving me towards? And so John will actually give us this perspective by giving us Mary as an example. He's not putting up Mary. By the way, this is Lazarus's sister. This is not, uh, there's like eight Marys in the New Testament. So I'm, this is Lazarus's sister, Martha's sister, the one who came out and said, you know, if you, uh, if you were here, he wouldn't have died, that kind of stuff. Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. If, if you're not familiar, pure nard is a, it is a ointment that comes from India, which at this time to import and everything, to have a pound of it, there's a reason why Judas Iscariot lists its value at 300 denarii. It is a year's worth of labor. Imagine taking your entire year's salary and using it for one instance of worship. Wasteful? It's almost hard for us not to call that wasteful, isn't it? Because by any normal human reckoning, that's crazy. You, you can totally worship God by just pouring out a couple of drops, right? Where was Mary's heart? It wasn't in counting the cost of such a thing. It was the goal of worship. Who else throughout all of history, will actually have Jesus in bodily form sitting there to be worshipped in physical manner. They don't know that the end is coming. She just knows that her brother has been brought back from the dead. What price is too expensive to worship the God who is now walking among us? And so as she sits down to take this flask of oil and pour out just think about what your salary or income is at the, at the highest earning year of your life. That's what this cost her to do. She takes a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Again, anyone who is assessing this from purely a perspective that is devoted to this world rather than worship, says this is wasteful and unnecessary. And yet, where is her mind at? Her mind is on worship. Her mind is on costly service. Now, the example is given in something that is valuable, but let me, let me expand it out far more. There, the interactions of her with Jesus do happen on something that is physically expensive. For us, it may be that. For us, it may not be that. But for all Christians, following Christ does cost us something. 
And John is showing us that that should not dissuade us in the least. Luke has expressed to us that following Christ may actually cost us family relationships. It may even cost us our own life. It may cost us comforts. It may cost us financially. It may cost us all manner of ways. And John is facing us with this and saying, those who truly worship Christ do not count the cost of these things. In fact, they take the attitude that Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 and says, whatever gain I had in this world, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Why? Not because those things were worthless, but because Christ has a surpassing value that cannot be compared. For Mary, this shows up as taking the most expensive thing, almost certainly, that she owned and pouring it out in worship to Christ. Following in the tradition long understood by the people of God, going back to David and to Abraham and even back to Adam, I will not give the Lord that which costs me nothing. I have had that written in the front of my Bible for many, many years. I will not give the Lord that which costs me nothing. I will not serve him in a manner that does not cost me something. I do not want to be lazy in following the Lord. I do not want to give a nod to this and have it just, I'll only follow you so long as it's comforting, so long as it's easy, and when the road gets difficult, diverge from it immediately. No. In fact, we should pursue our sufferings And lean on Christ in the middle of them. And here, Mary is being portrayed as doing this physically. Taking something that is physically expensive. And physically worshiping and anointing Jesus' feet. You have to understand, in this culture, it is improper for anyone that is not a slave. And even an Israelite slave was not there to wash the feet of somebody. And here, she's not only washing his feet, she is anointing them with oil, which is meant for the head, not the feet. And then she's taking her head and wiping his feet. You see what's happening here is understanding, you are not just one of us. You are the God that we serve. You are not just another rabbi. You are not just another man. Truly, God is walking in our midst. And are there overtones with thanksgiving here? Absolutely. She received her brother back from the dead. Is there gratitude here? Absolutely. Is there worship here? Absolutely. Is there humility here? Absolutely. Costly service? Absolutely. And John is showing us on the individual level what a proper belief in Christ looks like in her example. All of these things, worship, gratitude, humility, and costly service. Christian, I'm going to ask you on every one of these instances to look at your own life. Is that your attitude towards Christ? Humility, worship, costly service. What if following Christ costs you things? Hasn't it already? What if it invites more suffering into your life? Is it not worth it? What if it invites discomfort? 
loneliness. I tell you, that's been one of the hardest things about being in pastoral ministry I've ever experienced. The loneliness of, of that responsibility is something I've struggled with for a long time. I'll tell you, when, when and I'll just, okay, so here I'm just going to lay my cards out on the table on this one. When I go in the grocery store and somebody knows tangentially that I'm a pastor, they immediately start lying to me about everything in their life. It's a very weird thing uh, about, about how much they love studying the Bible or that they intend to go to church or something like this. And it's, it's just immediately walls go up all over the place, walls of fear, walls of all sorts of things like this. And it wasn't something I was ever expecting. And it's been something that's been quite a lonely aspect, even in some personal friendships of mine, is that they got shut down pretty quick too. And whether that's right or wrong or necessary on some people's parts, it's, it's very difficult to wrap my head around that sometimes. And I know, I know as Christians, we all experience such things. We experience it in families. We experience it throughout. And it's one of those things that we have to gauge whether or not is that worth it. Are the effects of following Christ and the service that we are given to do so, is it worth doing all of those things? I come so far to the answer, yes, it is indeed worth it, whatever it may do. Because what's the alternative? The alternative to the way of life, it's not that hard. What is the alternative to the way of life? The way of death. So let's see the example of that. Point two. Judas. Judas Iscariot. While Mary was worshiping the Lord, while she was offering costly service, humility, devotion to his lordship is what it means to wipe somebody's feet with your own hair. You are over me. While she was doing this, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, who was one of his disciples, let, let, me, let me explain why John is including that. He, of all people, should know better than this. He has been traveling with Jesus. He has done, if you're not familiar, miracles in following Jesus. Remember when Jesus had sent them all out two by two? I don't know what unfortunate guy got sent out with Judas Iscariot. But they all went out healing the sick, casting out demons. Judas Iscariot has been front and center to this the whole time accomplishing all of these things during the ministry of Jesus. So when John says, when Judas, who was one of his disciples, saw this, and John includes in this, you know, giving away the end thing, Judas Iscariot, verse 4, one of his disciples, he, was about, uh, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii, a year's labor, and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus' response was, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. But the poor you always have with you, but me you do not always have with you. What do we see in Judas? Obviously, wrong response. 
pretty straightforward. But let's kind of develop it down a bit. What does the way of death look like? The way of life has humility, has costly service, have we will follow Christ no matter, worship, lordship, all of those things. Christ will be our ruler. Christ will be our object of worship and object of our faith. What does Judas display? Greed, self-service, self-indulgence even, theft, lies, cover-up. This is the aspect of the life of somebody who is living in the way of death. And so the reader of John is meant to look at their own life and say, you say you believe in Christ, which of these is what your life looks like? Look down into it hard. When it comes down to it, which would you rather do? Self-interest or worship of Christ? Lies or humility? He's showing both sides of it, back and forth, back and forth, to show us what it looks like. It doesn't matter if something great was done by your hand. It doesn't. Judas Iscariot has cast out demons and has healed people with his own hands. It doesn't matter if something great was accomplished. You can see even in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus had preached to them before, many will come to me in the last day saying, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons and do all sorts of good works in your name? And what was Jesus' response? Depart from me. I never knew you. Why? Because it's not about what your hands have done. Workers of iniquity lawlessness, the way of death. If we look at this and we are not at least a little bit concerned to analyze our own life, something's wrong. Because this is why John is including these examples. So let's look at our lives. Why are you here this morning? Why are you faithful to your spouse? What reason do you have to raise your children, to influence your grandchildren? Why are you praying? John is having us look at our entire life. Why do you worship Christ? Why do you sing? Why are you reading your Bible? Do you think reading your Bible will get you into heaven? It won't. But if you're reading your Bible so that you may grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, marvelous. That's the way of life. Why are you giving money to the church? Is it so that the gospel may go out, so that the word of God may continually be preached? Or is it because you think God will give you something if you do that? I just If that's the reason for you giving money to the church, stop doing it. That's not how it works. The whole purpose of generosity and gratitude and humility in the life of a Christian is not to earn favor with the Lord. It is because God already has favor on us that we are humble and we are cheerfully grateful. There was no command for Mary to do this. None. Even by the standards of the law, this is over and above, way over and above. But her, out of gratitude for what Christ had done in her life, in her brother's life, responded with worship that made no sense whatsoever. And she was perfectly fine with that. There is nothing in the law that says 
take a year's worth of labor if you ever happen to run across the Messiah and pour it all over his feet. Nothing. I can't even imagine how long it took to wash that smell out of her hair. Nard is based on a certain resin that would take a good deal of work. But Judas comes in and shows us what the way of death looks like, what can betray the heart. A life of lies, of self-interest, of greed, of the deceitfulness of riches. These things pierce so many people's hearts through and lead them astray to walk in a manner not worthy of the gospel of Christ that actually does lead to death. It is one of those aspects about the world that we don't quite understand, especially here in our country. By any measure of anything historically around the world, we are all of us very wealthy. And we, we don't think we are because we compare it with this or that or these things. We are all of us in the very highest levels of, of income in the world and of even value and of life quality. The things we have access to, clean water, food that's not going to put us into an early grave, actual health care, even if it's rudimentary. These types of things, sanitation, sewage systems, flushing toilets, these types of things... 200 years ago, the highest ends of royalty didn't have access to. We think of them as a baseline for living. It is very hard in our culture not to be deceived into complacency with our wealth. We, of all people in the history of the church, have the ability to waste money on worship and yet we look at this and we actually probably find ourselves a little bit more practical about this and go, you know, Judas kind of had a little bit of a point. But he didn't. And John is showing us real worship is not practical. We're not giving up every Sunday morning. We're utilizing it well. You see the difference? When we come to church on Sunday morning, it is that God may work on us through his word. It is not giving up anything. This is the highlight of my week. Whether I was a pastor or not, I was in church on Sunday morning because I knew to expect that that's where God works on his people and I want God to work on me. I don't want to go there grudgingly. I don't want to go there with that attitude in mind, I want to go there expecting to be grateful for God's word. I want to be grateful for his people. I want to love their role in my life and my role in their life. I want us to be able to see these things and worship God out of a clear heart because it's not just about the individual relationship I have with the Lord. something else that we get problematic in our culture. And so John gives us both the individual's in Mary and in Judas, and now he gives us the groups. Let's look at the first one. Verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus, is, uh, that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, 
right? As far as for this huge group is concerned, I heard that Lazarus, who was definitely in the grave, and we all saw that, is now reclining at table and eating. That's a sight to see. True enough. I tell you, if Jesus is walking around the world doing miracles like this and raising free people from the dead, best believe I'm going to be taking up a plane ticket and I'm going to go over and see it. Right? I want to see that. That's curious to me. If you're not familiar, there's actually a man walking around in Israel today claiming to be the Messiah. Okay? This happens time and time again all throughout history. Um, but this, this kind of stuff, when it happens, uh, people travel from all over to come see it. And the same thing was true of Jesus. This crowd just happened to be right about who the Messiah was. Uh, when they learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And I will simply notate that the current person claiming that doesn't have any such verifiable things. Verse, six, uh, verse 10, rather. Uh, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Believing in Jesus may cost you something even as a group. When persecution settles on the church, whether they are in the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, or the Islamic empires throughout history, or even our own empire that will certainly turn on us one day, is that suffering worth it to you? What if they seek our lives? What if going to church risks your life? Let me say something that, that is more harmful to Americans. What if it costs you money to go to church as a penalty exacted on you by the governing authorities? That has happened multiple times in church history, by the way. Is it still worth it? Those of you who own businesses, what if being a Christian shuts you out of business licenses? What if you're not allowed to buy food? Where's the limit? This is one of the roles of the book of Revelation in the scriptures is to show us there do come times of suffering in the lives of Christians that sometimes they are faced with starvation and famine and persecution of all mounts. What is it that Christ says to them? Be faithful to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. This is the most ironic thing about this is that the way of life does pass through death but it continues past it. The way of death doesn't. It just ends there. John is showing us this, the same John who wrote the book of Revelation, by the way, so there's no accidental overflow. He's saying, look at these two groups, the crowds and the scribes and Pharisees. The crowds were coming out because they heard about Jesus and they saw the signs that he did and they believed on him. Just on the basic whole, that's marvelous. But then he says, let me introduce you to this other group, the chief priests and the Pharisees, which by the way are going to take a, a, a marked role here in, uh, in the last week of Jesus' ministry as what they aim for is going to happen. And ironically, so also is what God is aiming for and accomplishing. And we see that these two sides of this, one is believing in Jesus because of what he has said and what he has done. Remember all the way through John so far, the words and the works of Jesus, what he has said and what he has done, we now believe. For the chief priests and the scribes, they know that Lazarus was raised from the dead. 
Let that settle in for a second. They know that he raised somebody from the dead. They are not refuting it. They are not trying to explain it away. Some were even there that day to witness it happening. They know it happened. And now they not only want to kill him, they want to put Lazarus back in the tomb as well. How deep does unbelief go? Many people think it is just surface level. We just need to be able to convince them about Jesus. My friends, these guys saw Jesus raise someone from the dead and they still wouldn't believe in him. How far do you think our arguments are going to go? If you could demonstrate the gospel's power by going out and raising somebody from the dead and showing the ability of God to do that, guess what? You wouldn't save one more person than God was already saving with the message of the gospel. Not one. Because the gospel doesn't come through those means unless God is already ordained to do so. What he is expressing here is that even those who saw this for their own eyes would not believe in Jesus. And so for those who are reading the Gospel of John who do not believe in Christ, they can look at this and John is telling them, again, he's writing about 50 years after the events of these things. He is saying, just because you are living in a time in history where these miracles are not taking place, you too have no excuse. We live at a time where that is not the normative at all. Jesus' ministry was three, three and a half years long. John is writing to people who, are, who never saw Christ walking around. John is well on in years at this point. This is about maybe 30 years after these events. No, excuse me, 50 years after these events. And he is writing to a generation who never witnessed such miracles. Who's going to have to take the message of the gospel in written form and see it played out in the church. Us. Any of you ever seen someone raised from the dead? Did you have to see someone raised from the dead in order to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? No. Neither does anyone else. In fact, those who will not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, as he has expressed elsewhere, even if someone rises from the dead, they still won't believe. Belief is not something we conjure up when our minds are satisfied. Belief is something gifted. That is how the scriptures speak of it. Repentance is a gift given by God. It is not something that we just work our way up to. John expands on this by saying in verse 12, he goes back to the crowd. He says, the next day, the large crowd that came to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, and so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. We'll talk about the donkey thing in a second. What are they calling for? We use the term all the time, Hosanna, Hosanna. How many of us know what it means? What does it mean? God save us. It is, it is it's an emphatic version of that. It is, it is screaming out for God's salvation. And both coming in judgment and both coming in salvation. 
It is calling out for the king of Israel to finally set his feet on Mount Zion and establish salvation for us because in anything else we have no hope. It is an emphatic expression, God save us. Very good, by the way. They are saying this to the one they are calling God and the king of Israel while he is riding on a donkey. Culturally, what are we learning? Christ has the same mind that Mary had, one of humility. He's not riding on a horse. He's not riding with a huge procession. It's just him on a donkey with 12 random guys behind him, one of whom is seeking to kill him because he wanted money. John is including this story, not just because it's a historical event, but because it encapsulates the humility of following Christ. If you think that, go, well, you know what? I mean, it's, it's fine for other people to be humble in following Christ, but me, I'll tell you, the good things I've done for Christ, man, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say stuff like this. The ministry that God has done through me, the, the church that God has done through me, my ministry, my, 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 me, 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 me. John removes all boasting from us by showing us Jesus riding on a donkey. He who made stars is riding on a lowly donkey. Who do we think we are? Some people think that humility of mind is thinking lower of ourselves than we are. That is not even true at all. Humility is agreeing with God about who we are. That means declaring us as children of God is a humble statement. Why? Because God has given us that right. We didn't have it. Being made in the image of God is a humble reckoning. Why? Because we didn't earn that. We didn't work our way up to that. God designed us for that. Being conformed after the image of Christ, our boasting moves from us to him. Anything that has happened in your life as a Christian, whether in sanctification or in gratitude or humility, we owe entirely to the work of God in our life, not to us. Do not become proud about these things. Glory only in Christ. Because he is accomplishing these things. Listen to the words of this crowd. God save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. We will lay down our coats. We will lay down our palm branches. We will see him as he is, bringing salvation, bringing judgment, showing us the way of life while warning us about the way of death. And here he is, elucidating the way of life by riding on a donkey. And the reader of John is meant to look at themselves and say, I have a hard time lowering myself to even serve somebody else. And yet here, the one who made the universe is standing in the presence of a crowd of sinners without killing them all. Isn't that remarkable? Do you ever think about the kind of restraint? Jesus was fully aware of every single sin everyone was ever doing. The abuses, the neglect, 
the murders, the lies, the deceit, all around him, all the time, even with Judas Iscariot. You will see this prayer in John 17 when we get there, where he prays about his disciples, then he actually includes in that he has tolerated Judas Iscariot because the scriptures must be fulfilled. He knew all those years long, even at the calling of Judas Iscariot to follow him, that he would betray him and lead him to his death. And still, he didn't call him out on it the whole time. He had a purpose. The preaching of the gospel, the bringing of the kingdom of heaven to hand. John includes this reason to try to help the reader understand why the disciples were so thick-headed. Verse 16. His disciples didn't understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. In other words, we hadn't done our homework. We didn't know to expect the Messiah to come humbly. We didn't remember that he was to be riding on a donkey. We didn't remember that he himself would be walking in the way of life just like us. We kind of missed those things. He says, but after he was glorified, we remembered them all, and all of them had been fulfilled, and all of a sudden, the scriptures just explode with meaning. As the Old Testament sat like a lock that nobody really could figure out, expecting to be opened at some point, and all of a sudden, Jesus comes and... And everything explodes with light. Verse 17, the crowd had been with him. When he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, they continued to bear witness. Again, we're shown what it is for the group of those, not just on the individual level, but on the corporate level. What are they obsessed with? Bearing witness about Christ. They are obsessed with the good news that life is given in his name. They are obsessed with the Greek word for witness here is marturios. Even to the ultimate expression of being a witness, of being a martyr ourselves. Why do we face that? Because we follow the one who has victory over death. Even though the way of life passes through death, what is it that we define ourselves by but those who will be resurrected we see Lazarus as a piece of that. We see Christ as the first fruits. And we who commit our souls to him will certainly see it to our own life. John states the reason why the crowd was following Jesus, the reason why the crowd went to meet him, was that they heard that he had done this sign. And the Pharisees hated it. What do we see about these people in the crowd? What are the qualities of them? They believe on Christ. They come to worship him. Again, with humility. They look to Jesus to save them. They look to Jesus to rule their lives. There is no difference between what is depicted by the crowds here and the life of the church. We, too, believe in Christ. We worship him, even if it costs us. We follow him in humility of mind. 
We desire him to save us. We desire for him to rule our hearts and our lives. And so for not only the individual Christian, but also for the Christian community, we see both sides of that expressed in the way of life. But what about the way of death? On the communal line. We see the Pharisees and the chief priests. What do we learn about from them? They love power above anything. And their lies mislead those in their care, leading to the destruction of the message of the gospel. Many churches, so-called, can be seen in that very format. And it is unfortunate, because the reality is that the message of the gospel is bore inside these jars of clay, as we just read in 2 Corinthians 4. We have an outward appearance that's wasting away, some of us more than others. We have an outward appearance that the world is able to see. They can actually see the treasure that's held within. They can only interpret through us in the things that we care about and the things that we do. The humility with which we lead our lives, our love of Christ, our love of his people, are setting aside of our own interests and desires for power and other types of ways to get ahead, are setting aside of riches and its deceit if it is taking over our lives. And instead, we will follow Christ no matter what it costs us on the individual level and on the corporate. And for those who refuse to believe on the Lord Jesus, it doesn't matter if they are standing outside the tomb on Easter morning. They could see him walking out of the grave. It still wouldn't be enough. And it happens not only on the individual level, but also on the corporate level. The Pharisees and the chief priests knew that Jesus had risen Lazarus from the dead. Their response to that was to put Lazarus back in the tomb and now to seek to kill Jesus too. Isn't it a remarkable thing? The question to us, as John is intending, what path are we on? Which one do you see reflected by us here? By your individual life? By the life of the fellowship of believers that you are part of? The way of life looks worshipful, costly, a service to Christ in one another at any point. A devotion to Christ, no matter those around you. Ultimately seeking salvation in Christ and his rule in your life at all points. Even if that means cherished sins and desires must be set aside. We all have those, don't we? Those ones that we explain away are not as big of a deal. They easily entangle us, but we never have to address them. Those ones we set aside for the sake of following Christ. The path of death here is described as well. The way of death looks like this. Self-interest. Ruled by the cares of this world alone. Deceitfulness of riches. 
things having power over you that are not Christ, whether it be money or notoriety. And it will show up that you will treat the world exactly as you, how you think the world is treating you. You will seek power over others. And you will lead them astray. You will lie in order to get ahead in the world. Cheating, misleading, and you will explain it away as just another thing. But it's not. These things lead to death. We are to follow Christ in all ways. Believing on his name that you may live means that he is not just our savior far away, but he is closer than a brother. And his rulership in our life should cause us to the point that says, if his feet were in front of us, I too would desire to worship him from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. Even if it cost me everything. Even if it costs me nothing. Even if it leads to great comforts in this life, which will lull me to sleep, God, give me the energy to be humble even in the hardest of circumstances when everything is comfortable. May God teach us our need that we may be grateful to him in all circumstances. Paul gives us this lesson. And I'll say this in closing. It's in Philippians chapter 4. He has said that throughout his Christian life, he has had to learn how to be content. Most of us think contentment with our life is due to just being okay with bad circumstances. It's not that. He actually says both sides. I have learned how to be sick and how to be well, how to be poor and how to be wealthy. Do you know that contentment is necessary of the rich and the healthy as much as it is necessary for the poor and the sick? I have known very, very wealthy people in my life. Very few of them are contented people. I have also known very, very poor people in my life. Very few of them are contented people. Christians are called not to pull their contentment from their circumstances. They are called to pull their contentment from Christ. We have learned in any and every situation, the apostle says, how to be poor and how to abound. In any and every situation, how to be content. Gratitude is the first step, I promise. Humility is with every step along the way. May God give us strength as he guides us down the way of life. Let's pray. Our Father, we're very grateful for your word. In it are challenges and ways of looking at the world that we do not naturally have. And it teaches us of our desires, some of them good, some of them deceitful. Teach us, Father, to interpret what it means to follow you and to love you with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. To love one another as ourselves. To love ourselves as images of God and images of Christ being formed after his very nature. 
We pray, Father, for strength to this end, for we all lack it in the natural. But thanks be to you, who has given us something far greater than anything we could muster. Teach us to be content. Teach us to trust in Christ and devote ourselves to following him, even if it means that we must set aside things that we like and things that we desire. Nard, indeed, is enjoyable and smells pleasant. But even good things may be set aside in service to Christ. May you teach us what it means to worship you with our whole heart. We pray in your son's name. Amen.